Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you are with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Darren. How did you spend your break? Uh, well, we got out of Canberra a couple of times, went camping in the Bega Valley, but the highlight was a visit to the Yurongabili Caves, uh, which is uh, a kind of, I guess if you're driving over the Kosciuszko National Park from this side, from Cooma, headed towards Tumut on the other side, Yurongabili is about halfway across, right near the top, I guess. Uh, and they're these amazing natural caves. There's over a hundred of them, I think. And you can, they're very well lit by infrastructure and, and you can get tours and do self-guided tours. And there's also uh, a warm pool there that you can go swimming in. So there's actually a homestead on the, the site where if you book sufficiently far in advance, uh, as we were lucky enough to do, you can stay uh, on the, the caves themselves, which is very cool. So a real highlight. How about you? Yeah, well, similarly, we just uh, came back from 10 days down on the south coast of New South Wales, which is one of my favourite places in the uh, in the world, and we were staying at a NRMA resort in in cabins down near Murramurang National Park with eight uh, grand grandchildren. So it was both um, both fulfilling and exhausting. And there are sort of senses in which I'm not unhappy to be uh, to be back home again, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> I, recording this from my office at the ANU, I'm also enjoying a sense of, of, of tranquility that has been lacking uh, over the last uh, few weeks, but that that's okay. I've also stayed at Marmarang, uh, that, that park. It's highly recommended to everyone. It's lots of fun and a great location. Anyway, a happy new year to all of our listeners as well. It's Thursday the 19th of January today, and our plan is to continue a past practice of using the new year to look back over the previous one and forward to what might be ahead. However, true to form, the current government has already been active on the foreign policy front and given us things to talk about, principally with Prime Minister Albanese's visit to Papua New Guinea, which had been delayed uh, from last month after he contracted COVID-19. So we'll start there, but also then cover an unusual diplomatic spat here in Canberra before zooming out. So we begin with the Prime Minister's visit to PNG last week, which was the first for a sitting Australian PM since 2018. And he was also the first foreign head of government to address the PNG parliament. The headline outcome was a pledge to finalise a new security treaty by the middle of the year, a deal that Albanese described as comprehensive and would include, amongst other things, climate change. I found it quite worthwhile to read the PM's speech to parliament, which was titled a bond between equals and emphasized the rich history and friendship between Australia and PNG, especially the spirit of partnership and equality. Albanese echoed themes from earlier speeches of his government, especially those from Foreign Minister Wong, that included the agency of smaller countries and the need to demonstrate that democratic systems can deliver for their people. There were other themes of education, trade and infrastructure in the speech, and of course, security with mentioned though that in the security context Papua New Guinea's priorities included law and order, a stronger justice system and the rule of law and of course climate change. The Prime Minister also expressed a wish to see a PNG-based 
Pacific Islander team competing in the National Rugby League competition. Alan, it's it's very hard for someone like me who does not know nearly enough about PNG and the history of the relationship to see this trip, this kind of trip, through any other lens than geopolitics. What's your assessment of the trajectory of the relationship coming out of this visit? And how much does one get right and how much does one miss viewing it through a geopolitical frame? There are times on this podcast, Aaron, when I feel particularly ancient and Yoda-like, <laughs> and and I have to say that this is one of them. Look, the first job I ever had in Canberra was after second year university when I had what would now be called an internship, I guess, at the old Department of Territories. And my job was to proofread the statistical annexes to Australia's annual report to the United Nations Trusteeship Council on our management of PNG. Now, deadly tedious, but I learned a lot. And then I travelled a few years later to PNG as, as a DFAT graduate recruit and subsequently worked in what was then called the trusteeship section of the department as Australia began preparing for PNG's independence. So, look, when you ask about looking at PNG through a geopolitical lens, one way of answering is to say that ever since the peace conference at Versailles in 1919, when Billy Hughes demanded and got for Australia the League of Nations mandate for the uh, former German territory of New Guinea, right through the battles against Japanese forces in the Second World War, past Australian concerns about Indonesia in the 1960s, there's hardly been a time, apart maybe from you know globalisation years of the 1990s and 2000s, when we haven't seen PNG in geopolitical terms. And even then, even during that uh, you know very peaceful period, we were worried about non-state actors and uh, and fragmentation. For a long time in the post-independence period, one of the constraints weighing against a closer defence treaty relationship with PNG was the fear that Australia might be drawn into direct conflict with Indonesia over the uh, boundary issues with West Papua. So the current geopolitical focus on China and uh, the two prime you're not alone in your geopolitical focus. The two prime ministers got scarcely any other question in their press conference. That's part of the way Australia has thought about the island of New Guinea for well over a century. But another way of answering your question, I guess, is to say that we miss a great deal by simply looking at PNG through that lens. And for that reason, the media preoccupation with the defence agreement was a bit disappointing. If you ask me what the most startling news I've heard about the world in recent months might be, it was that report, you probably saw it before Christmas, of a UN study based on satellite imagery, which suggested that PNG's population was not 9 million, as we've thought, but 17 million, that is nearly three quarters of Australia's. Now, if that or anything like it is true, then the country is, you know, one, more populous than we thought, and B, much poorer in per capita terms. And the problem is that we and the PNG government just don't know how accurate this is. The last planned census there was cancelled and 
Another is uh, is planned for 2024, and Australia should be, and no doubt is, offering support for that. But my point is that whatever the geopolitical interests Australia has in PNG, the challenges and dangers for us are much more likely to come from economic or social unrest or collapse, from fallout over the Bougainville conflict and Bougainville's desire for independence, from the direct impact on Australia of deteriorating health conditions there, from climate change. The PM also noted in his speech to Parliament that we also have an important economic relationship, though I, I, do, I do have to say that when he pointed out that we have more investment in PNG than in India, Indonesia or Malaysia, I, I really did interpret that as more of a problem for Australia and the rest of Asia than a triumph for us in Melanesia. So my view is that the level and intensity of Australia-PNG relationships over a century and our continuing mutual interests can give us a really high degree of confidence that Chinese support for a military hospital, which we you know, saw reports of a couple of weeks ago, for example, is not going to be transformed into Beijing, uh, Port Moresby military access. Although PNG, like every country in the region, is going to want to conduct its own independent relationship with Beijing. So look, anyway, I, I think the BM showed a strong understanding of the issues in the relationship and he took some important steps forward including with the Bilateral Security Treaty. His decision to travel to WIWAC in New Guinea as well as Port Moresby in Papua in order to pay tribute to Michael Samari, the um, founding father of PNG, was especially important, I think. Okay, well, thanks very much for that, Alan. That was really interesting. Um, a lot of background I had no knowledge of. I think I'll allow myself to remain captured by the geopolitical framing of the media um, to offer my comment because I will be very interested to read the security agreement if and when it is finalised. There's already deep security cooperation between the two countries, including the training of PNG forces in Australia to joint operations. But as an IR theorist, when I think of defence agreements or security agreements, I ultimately think of them as being about combining forces in response to some external threat to one's territory or independence. This is the idea of balancing from IR theory, balancing against potential adversaries. And that's what classic alliances are supposed to do. They are agreements to fight with each other alongside each other if one is attacked. But if we look to the China Solomon Islands security agreement, which of course made so much news last year, while we don't know for sure the precise details, it's still hard to imagine that you could categorize that deal fitting into this traditional category. It's hard to identify a hostile foreign force that both sides agree needs to be countered or deterred with the agreement specifically being then about that mission. Both then the China Solomon Islands agreement and a potential agreement between Papua New Guinea and Australia reflect instead a new reality that international security cooperation means just much, much more than preparing to fight against external foes. Part of this is definitely being driven by China's engagement practices. Beijing does not like traditional security alliances. It criticizes them as being exclusionary and zero sum, often because they were initiated by the US in the post-war period. But China's concept of security is also quite different. It's much broader. 
and it has a strong focus on internal security, which unsurprisingly resonates with many developing countries where basic questions of internal stability are an issue. And as we discussed, Alan, with the China Solomon Islands Agreement, the key interest then for Australia is the extent to which liberal values and basic rights are respected in the process of achieving that internal security. And then separately for Pacific nations in particular, you have climate change. So the shared interests that form the basis of cooperation are different in these modern security agreements. Internally, PNG has an interest in internal stability and law and order. Australia has an interest in the manner in which that is achieved. Externally, both countries are focused on the threat of climate change. In the current moment, these are the security issues of importance rather than maybe more narrow categories like policing or emissions mitigation or climate change adaptation. They're being framed as broader security issues. And from a geopolitical perspective, such agreements are not about unidirectional assistance like they might have been in the past either, where you are stabilizing a failed state or delivering foreign aid. Instead, they're being framed rightfully as partnerships between equals to achieve joint objectives. From an Australian perspective, then, it strikes me that a key payoff is simply the multiplying and thickening of the web of ties between the two countries. Over the longer term, the tangible benefits of security cooperation are less likely to look like those from World War II, where PNG was literally giving Australia assistance on the battlefield. Or, or to be more precise, Darren, when Australia's colonial subjects were giving assistance on the battlefield. Yes, indeed, Alan. Although I confess to recoiling just slightly when confronted with that truth, which I guess is the point. But my point here is that the benefits of cooperation are more likely to resemble I guess, the utilising of one of many available connections to achieve influence in a given scenario. And so you want to build as many of those connections as possible across government, across society, as you would say, Alan, to give you options in the future. All right, well, let's move on to our second item. And again, before we zoom out to look back over the year, I think we need to discuss briefly a very unusual disagreement between two ambassadors to Australia, representing China and Japan. In a speech last week, China's ambassador, Xiao Chan, suggested that Japan's failure to apologize officially for World War II meant that the Japanese government had not accepted that its actions were wrong and that history could therefore repeat itself. To quote the ambassador, once somebody threatens you, he might threaten you again. China has been your friend. We will continue to be your friend, end quote. Now, Subsequent media reporting noted that in 1957, the then Japanese Prime Minister Kishi did express heartfelt sorrow for the war on a visit to Australia. And of course, Japan is now one of Australia's closest security partners. Ambassador Xiao's specific complaint, though, is that the Japanese ambassador, Yamagami Shingo, is using his position to conduct a kind of wedge strategy to prevent China and Australia from improving their strained relationship. What I would observe myself is that, to me, Ambassador Yamagami has been relatively outspoken and not at all shy about engaging with the Australian media, including being critical directly of China. I'll post an article that covers an interview that he did with the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, in response to this direct criticism from his PRC counterpart, Yamagami said that he was baffled and perplexed by Xiao's comments. So, Alan, what did you make of this? How unusual is it to have the ambassadors of two countries publicly 
attacking and bickering with each other. It is really unusual, Darren. I mean, it, I can't remember anything quite like it before. One of the principal public jobs of an ambassador is normally to talk up the relationship with the country to which they're accredited, but not to engage in rhetorical sword fights with third parties. Now, Ambassador Yamagami and Ambassador Shao are among the most able representatives uh, Japan and China have sent to Australia. They're both highly experienced. They seem to be confident in the support they have from their home ministries, and they both know how to make news. The question for any diplomat is whether you are crossing the blurry line under Article 41 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, which I confess I did have to look up. <laughs> That's not something that I, I uh, refer to in the normal course of events. But uh, I knew there was something in the Vienna Convention about interfering in internal affairs, and it's Article 41. I can't say I'm particularly disturbed by this. They're, they're both grown-ups and they can look after themselves. But the spat does suggest that both Japan and China see subtle movement, or at least the chance of subtle movement, in the relationship between Australia and China and Japan wants to limit it. Oh, interesting. Well, the main consequence of this for me was to visit the Japanese embassy's website. And quite helpfully, all of the ambassador's media appearances there are listed in the time since he's been ambassador. And there are lots. And I did a rough count, and it seems like he's been on Sky News nine times. Now, Alan, that's nine times more than I've been on Sky. Is it nine more for you? I think it's eight more than me, Darren, but the, but the <laughs> one was a long time ago. <laughs> well, you know, from what I've seen, the Japanese ambassador is a very effective performer in the media, as you've said. But I think back to our last episode, Alan, with Assistant Foreign Minister Tim Watts, who commented that modern diplomacy might equally require video production skills as much as cable drafting skills to be effective. So you could add to that list and ask maybe being an able performer in the media, you know, like Yamagami clearly is, being able to go on Sky uh, or equivalents and, and have debates and, and engage with commentators and, and journalists might be also increasingly necessary to get your government's message out. Now, I'm in two minds on this because there are obviously risks and to see those in action, just look at Xiao's invocation of Japan in World War II, which to me was tone deaf and an error of strategic communication, because I just don't see this line of attack resonating with the Australian public in the year 2023, let alone policymakers in Canberra. And then you have his warnings about past threats and future threats with many local listeners, I imagine, thinking they could equally apply to China and the economic pain that Australia has suffered in recent years. Now, his audience might have been in Beijing, but even if that is true, it could well have come at the cost or at a cost in terms of how he is perceived in Canberra or by the broader public. And this, I think, therefore serves a lesson of the risks of entrusting diplomats with these kinds of bolder, potentially more political interventions. But this then brings me to Yamagami, who is even more interesting because he's been even more visible and you would say even more outspoken. He's made multiple interventions into Queensland state politics, criticising the government of the Labor Premier Palaszczuk for a new coal royalty regime. Now, he's clearly standing up for the economic interests of Japanese companies and his country, 
but he's doing so in a very public way. And so I ask myself the question, does this come at a cost at the margins in terms of his relationships with or access to the federal government? After all, you know, these things are normally done in private. So I'm sort of fascinated by what you might call or what I would like to call the Yamagami model of diplomacy. Of course, you have a spectrum of diplomatic styles. You've got the classic PRC wolf warrior diplomacy, maybe at one end. And at the other end, you could imagine the most boring, media shy, risk averse diplomat at that end of the spectrum. And so the Yamagami model, such as it is, is somewhere in between, but perhaps a bit closer to the wolf warrior end of the spectrum than the opposite. Not without risk, but perhaps you know, in the year 2023, this is what modern diplomacy increasingly needs more of. Of course, Alan, this then makes me wonder, because just before Christmas, it was announced that Australia's former Prime Minister, Karen Rudd, will be our next ambassador to the United States. What will a Rudd model look like? Any comment from you, Alan? Well, just before I get on to Kevin Rudd, on Yamagami and, and Charlotte, one of the ways in which this is very relevant to Australia is that both of them have shown that if you want to have an impact with the public in the country you are accredited to, you have to be able to speak the language fluently, which both of them do. And that is something that Australia has to learn. We've still got you know, too many ambassadors overseas who are unable to speak fluently, at least to, to engage to the extent that both of them can with the public on complex issues. So that's one lesson to be drawn from it. But back on the appointment of uh, Ambassador Rudd, certainly different from anything in the past. We've had former politicians in Washington lots of times, including Arthur Sinodinus now and Kim Beasley from the Labor side, but never a former Prime Minister. We've certainly never had an ambassador who is such a high-profile thought leader, if I can use that term. Kevin Rudd's very well known to the US national security establishment, both from his time in Australian politics and since then, of course, he's lived in the States as president and CEO of the Asia Society and as a writer and commentator on China. So he's clearly hugely well qualified for the job. The issue for him and for ministers back here will be to ensure that what he says in private and in public is and is understood to be conveying the views of the Australian government and not the views of the ambassador in Washington. Now, of course, there'll be plenty of times when Mr Rudd's own knowledge and advice will be valuable in its own right. The hard part will be, or at least may be, differentiating between the envoy and the expert. Indeed. And as the next election gets closer, it will also be important for the ambassador and the embassy generally to start building links with potential Republican presidential candidates. That's always an important function for our overseas posts to be ready for whatever may come. And that was always going to be hard given the new ambassador's political background and his long list of things that he said on record, but it is something to which he and the embassy will have to give attention. 
But bottom line, in the always crowded field of DC Heads of Mission, we can be certain that Ambassador Rudd will be a prominent figure. And uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a very interesting last point. I think it captures where I was coming from. You know, prominence is important. And in this social media dominated 24-hour news cycle world that we live in, prominence becomes much more important, even if it comes at the cost uh, of creating controversy sometimes, sometimes at the cost of maybe having some poor relationships with, with certain people. I think it bears careful study, like how we weigh up these different imperatives and in which countries one is going to be more important than the other. So, you know, I'm certainly not here to, it wasn't intending to, to criticize Yamagami. I mean, I agree with you. He's been extremely effective, but there is, I think, some great work to be done on the academic side to kind of be more precise about what the, the costs and benefits are and how you evaluate these given the, the country, you know, you're going to be sending the ambassador to in its, its own local environment. Yeah, I think I think that's right, Darren. I think scholarship is well behind, you know, the the reality of contemporary diplomacy and there is work to be done there. Just like with video production skills and a viral tweet and something like that. Okay, well, let's let's go big picture now, Alan. In the past, it's been my preference to frame these discussions as a question of how did your priors or your model or understanding of the world change? And so that's how I'm going to structure my thoughts, but I'll let you frame your answer any way you like. What are your takeaways from the past 12 months? Well, I'll do it that way too. Um, the big reminder during the year, as often before in Australian history, was that events far from our shores, in this case in Ukraine, can affect security and economy directly. I was reminded again, in case I'd forgotten, the lesson of the US invasion of Iraq, which is that all countries are capable of taking actions which seem likely by all sober analysis to end up contrary uh, to their own interests, but they go ahead anyway. Among a rich banquet of post-World War II examples, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, I think, is the most blatant breach of international law and norms we've seen since 1945. On the US-China front, I was surprised that we saw much more forceful and direct movement than I expected in Washington's adoption of a clear economic and military containment policy, especially uh, the semiconductors decision. In China, the speed of dismantling zero COVID policy after Xi Jinping secured his third term surprised me, as did the apparent incapacity of a system which in all other respects, is so directive and demanding of its citizens to vaccinate uh, so many of the vulnerable elderly. And finally, of course, we had the change of government in Australia, which looked at one level to deliver continuity in foreign and national security policy, but which I think contains in its approach to Australia's national identity, Penny Wong's statement that what we project to the world about who we are is an element of our national power, for example, the foundation for what could end up some very different approaches. Mm, great. Thanks, Alan. Well, I've got four areas where I think my model is changing. First, there seems to be an increase in what is called conflict expectations. And this is a variable that can change in models of state behavior. And this is 
the perceived probability among elites and publics that a war affecting them, most importantly, a major power war, could occur. Now, the reason expectations are changing is obvious. As you noted, Alan, there is a war being fought right now in Ukraine involving what many would consider a major power, certainly a nuclear power. Russia's invasion, though, has done more than just shatter the ideal that major powers would no longer fight on the European continent. The psychological impact has also spilled over into our region and assessments of the probability that China could initiate military action, especially in regards to Taiwan, or perhaps that even Taiwan or the US might act in a way that leaves Beijing no choice, so to speak. Let me stress that I actually don't believe that the actual probability of open conflict has increased. If anything, Russia's battlefield failures and significant economic retaliation from the West might be causing Beijing to calculate that it's actually less ready for such a conflict. But what is changing is the perception. The issue is a vivid one. It's a salient one in people's minds now. And you have a concrete analogy in Ukraine to reach for, to motivate inferences about what might happen in our region. Therefore, I think the war in Ukraine has become also a convenient talking point for those pushing policy agendas, calling for more resources and attention on national security and specifically on balancing China. I think Japan is actually the best example here. You've seen the LDP government of Prime Minister Kishida, who is looking to continue the legacy of his predecessor, Abe Shinzo, in normalizing Japan's security policy. You've seen him use the Ukraine example to that good effect, to sort of say that Ukraine today may be East Asia tomorrow. He's made this point several times. And if you read Japan's recently released national security strategy, a similar point is made on, on page two of that document. The other consequence, I think, is we've seen an, somewhat of an increase in solidarity, both within and among like-minded democracies, about the need to resist threats to the international order, at least when it comes to aggression. It's often said that the Cold War was a strong disciplining device for the maintenance of domestic solidarity because populations had to minimize their differences in the name of being united against the Soviet communist threat. So I'm seeing a bit of that now, certainly in Europe, but I think there will be some residual impact that can endure beyond Europe as well within democracies. My second change is in the economic and financial realm, rising interest rates and the multiple emerging financial crises that remind us of how much global financial conditions matter. We've seen much tighter monetary policy, high interest rates in the US, the end of cheap money, and that has really added to the pressures on so many governments around the world. And the consequence has been to widen further the gap between people's expectations and the needs of populations on one hand, and the capacity of existing governance systems and institutions to meet those expectations and needs. And this is a point that was made in the Global Trends 2040 document that we discussed some time ago, Alan, but a quote from that report, actors at every level are struggling to agree on new models for how to structure civilization. This brings me to my word of the year that we discussed back in December, Alan, polycrisis, which tries to capture the idea that there are multiple systemic risks emerging together that are combining and placing system level pressure on so many political and economic institutions at once. 
you've got the financial tightening, you've got geopolitical competition, you've got climate change, you can add energy crises and food insecurity from the Ukraine conflict. And this is, you know, all happening together and interacting. Well, yeah, let me interrupt quickly to say that I gave much more thought than was strictly necessary to what the word of the year should be. As we discussed last time, I toyed with statecraft, which suddenly seemed to be all around us. But in the end, I've decided that I agree with you, popularised by Adam Tooze, as you noted last time, and since then reported all over Davos in the past week, polycrisis with its useful capturing, as you say, of multiple systemic risks gets my vote too. (laughs) Okay, interesting. Well, this gap between the expectations placed on existing institutions and their far reduced capacity to deliver on those expectations is going to trigger various kinds of backlash and that could cause seismic change. One area I'm interested in is the economy. Like we haven't talked about this yet, Alan, but I'm sure you are as disappointed as I am about the Biden administration's refusal to acknowledge the legitimacy of a recent WTO ruling that the Trump administration's use of the national security exemption to justify tariffs on steel violated international trade rules. Now, while I'm disappointed because it's just so dangerous to use a national security exemption so broadly because it could really then cover anything, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. And I think about the work of Karl Polanyi, who argued that economic institutions like markets, for example, they're not separate from society, but they're embedded within it. And efforts to keep them separate, regardless of the cost on people, invite a backlash, what Polanyi called a double movement, in which economic relationships and markets are forcibly re-embedded within a social structure. And I would also add a geopolitical structure. So my point here is simply to observe that the strain on the system that we have and that we've enjoyed for 70, 80 years is getting stronger. And we just don't yet know whether that strain is going to cause the system to break or at least change significantly into a different form. All those conflicting interpretations of the rules-based order, what it is and who's following it. Yeah, absolutely. My third and fourth ones are faster. The third ones, I'm going to repeat a point I made on an earlier episode, which I think is becoming more true, which is that there is a leveling of the playing field on what the best institutional forms might be. The major competitors in recent years to the status quo, which you could think of as centrist, pragmatic, liberal democracies, these competitors have been quite strong. And you know, you could think of right-wing reactionary populism of Donald Trump or the centralized authoritarianism of China and Russia. But both of them did not have a good year in 2022. And I think it highlighted their ineffectiveness and inability to course correct. You know, right-wing populism saw pretty poor electoral outcomes, the US midterms as we discussed, Brazil's election with the defeat of Bolsonaro, although I guess on the counterpoint would be the Italian election. And while, you know, we saw in China and Russia, as you said, Alan, pretty catastrophic policy failures, China on zero COVID and Putin with the invasion. So it's not to say that our preferred forms are winning in the race for influence, but the playing field seems much more level now. And finally, fourth, in my own field of geoeconomics, it was a big year, as we've discussed, for economic sanctions. You know, we have talked previously about the integration of the economic and financial with the military on the battlefield. And we saw, especially with central banking sanctions and export controls, how potent 
the global economy can be, how it can be used as a weapon. Even though these might not have deterred Russia, at the margins, I'm pretty confident that they will act as a deterrent for other would-be aggressors in the future. You really think that's true? I mean, maybe this is not the time to debate this, but isn't isn't what we've seen just another example of the failure of economic sanctions to achieve their objective, a point that's been sort of brought out in a couple of uh, recent books? Look, if you're measuring with a binary variable, you know, were the ultimate outcomes achieved, then yes, that's correct. Most of the time, economic sanctions fail to do this, basically because the political issues in dispute are far more valuable to the sanctioned country than the economic pain being inflicted. But if we're measuring the effectiveness of instruments of statecraft in a binary way, we could also question military force a bit too, Yep. given yep. the long-term yep. failures in Iraq <laughs> and Afghanistan and, and perhaps even also in, in Ukraine. So I think my intuition is that the extent of the weaponization of the financial system in particular, but also I think of supply chains, will now be factored in by Beijing or indeed any other government that's assessing whether to use force in a way that will be widely condemned by the international community. And I think therefore, from a policymaking perspective, you know, if a government is doing scenario planning for military conflicts, the geoeconomic area of operations will need to feature. I think of how the US military structures its combatant commands, which break up its operations by geographic area, so Pacific Command or European Command, or by functional purpose. You've got Cyber Command and Space Command. Now, there might not need to be a geoeconomic combatant command, but certainly governments everywhere, including in Australia, especially when thinking about Taiwan scenarios, are going to need to give this a lot of attention and integrate the economic with the military in their planning, as I'm doing in my research. It's, it's very interesting. All right, Alan, finally, let's look forward briefly to 2023. What's on your radar for the coming year? I'll just focus on Australia, I think. I think the Albanese government has got off to a very good start, but life is going to get a lot more difficult for it in the international area in 2023. Not being Scott Morrison was enough to begin repairing strained relations with uh, France and China. Australia's close neighbours have been listened to respectfully and have responded positively. But the tensions that will inevitably present themselves between liberal values, national interests and regional commitments are still to be fully felt and I think will be more fully felt next year. The release of the Defence Strategic Review early this year will present the government with unprecedented decisions about the size of the defence budget and with complex sovereignty choices as well. The growing clarity of Washington's intentions to contain China's growth, which we were talking about, and the uncertainty of China's own trajectory will generate further difficult decisions. And that's in not even to mention the hard decisions to come on climate, energy, and the environment. But, you know, credit where it's due, the you have to say, unusual combination of attentiveness and calm focus that has marked the Albanese government's approach to the outside world gives it a solid template to follow. Mm. I've listened to a few podcasts over the past month doing this same exercise, and most of them have predicted a relatively stable year for US-China relations, arguing that neither government has much incentive to, to make the relationship worse. I, I tend to agree with that. And I'd 
probably go a step further actually and say that I think both governments are going to have bad years that we'll look back and both the US and China will appear weaker at the end of this coming year than they do now. In the US, you know, the Republicans will no doubt cause a lot of grief for the White House and the debt ceiling debate is just one prominent example of where it could really harm the US overall. And China is just dealing with such an array of policy problems, it's hard to see how they'll be able to focus strategically on, on the bigger picture. For Australia, look, I think Canberra and Beijing, you know, we can expect that relations might well continue to warm. But as you say, Alan, some of the tensions that are structural could rear their heads. And I, I think of that through the lens of shocks, right? There, some event could happen that, that forces the two sides into their respective corners because they feel compelled to be there. But that, of course, then is 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 poisonous for the relationship. Um, most of all, I'm interested in the financial side of things, the continued financial squeeze, the, the ripple effects, the end of tight money, and what might be the reactions of rich countries and international financial institutions, banks, and China itself to these emerging crises you know, across the rest of the world. Okay, Alan, let's finish up with reading, listening, and watching. What did you keep busy with over the break? Well, the rule when you're on holidays should be to stay away from your regular work. So I read a book that was recommended to me by your colleague at ANU, Anthea Roberts, whose own excellent Six Faces of Globalization was your recommendation this time last year, uh, Darren, I think. Yeah. Now, the book is, uh, is called Sand Talk, how Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World, and it's by Tyson Yunkaporta. It's a serious topic, but written in a very accessible and often funny way by an Aboriginal Australian who's trying to explain to the rest of us how we should think about Indigenous knowledge, what there is to talk about, how it can contribute to our understanding of the country and the world. I found it really valuable in uh, clarifying my own thinking about this subject, which until now, I guess, had been sympathetic, but tempered by a bit of suspicion about mysticism and never particularly orderly. So it's it's really brought about an important change in how I personally think about the subject. And although I said I was trying to read outside my normal lane, Santalk has real value for Australian diplomats and political leaders who are trying to think about what a First Nations foreign policy might mean, and for everyone, whatever your view, who wants to think seriously about the voice referendum later this year. Thanks, Alan. I will definitely take a look at that. That sounds really interesting. I did not do any reading over the break because my children would not leave me alone for long enough to get into a book, except when they were asleep, by which point I was too tired to do any reading. So I've got a couple of documentaries um, to recommend, both with the basic theme of crazy guys who climb mountains. The first is called 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible, which is on Netflix and the other one is called Free Solo, which is, I think is on Disney+. Plus. Um, and they're both about what are truly extraordinary physical achievements. In, in 14 Peaks, you have a man named Mirmal Purja, who's Nepalese, who climbs all 14 of the highest um, mountains of the world. They're all over 8,000 metres in height. But he does that in seven months, when the previous record was seven years. And Free Solo is uh, about an American climber named Alex Honold, who free solos, which means climbs up a mountain without any ropes or anything protecting him if he, if he falls up uh, El Capitan, which is you know, sort of the, the mecca of climbing in the United States. And any wrong move from him when he does this 
is going to mean he dies, uh, which makes, of course, the filming of the documentary of him doing it is also a very fraught exercise for the documentary team itself. So, yeah, I've, I've seen Free Solo and it's uh, it's uh, absolutely riveting. Uh, watch. It is. Um, and, and they're riveting not just because of the scenery um, and the majesty of the mountains, which is patent, but they're also just really compelling human stories, um, especially not the men themselves, but about those who are around them and the full range of consequences and impacts for those people around them. And more broadly, that flow from these men's pursuit of true greatness um, and what kind of mindset it requires, um, what you're willing to give up and risk to do these things. Uh, it certainly made me wonder, you know, or realise that I certainly did not have a mindset to, to do something in such a single-minded way. But it is remarkable and, and riveting, as you say, to watch them to watch them do it. Um, okay, well, on that note, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Walter Kornagi for research and audio editing today. And of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.